0: Hey everybody, welcome back to We Are Movies. As always, I'm Johnny Mockney and... If you know me and if you know this podcast, you know I'm not one for consistency. I don't want to be pigeonholed. I don't want this podcast to be for only one type of movie person. I want it to be for all types of movie people. Or all types of people, for that matter. Maybe you're not into movies. Maybe you just really like listening to very heavy, sort of disgusting Midwestern accents. And if that's the case, I'm very happy to tell you you're also in the right place. Um. That being said, this is a bit of a change of pace from the last few episodes. After talking about the exploits of Vegas performer Duke Mitchell and about my affinity for a certain reboot of a certain trashy horror franchise, uh, we're taking you back home. We're giving you an episode today that if you happen to be listening to it in public, sitting on a bus or some other public transportation or just around your friends and somebody asks you what you're listening to, you won't be embarrassed to tell them what it is this time. My guest today is a pretty special one. He is one of the most important people in my entire film education Perhaps this side of Stephen Thrower and Joe Bob Briggs, he has had uh, some of the biggest impact on my development of my own cinephilia, which you can take as either a positive or a negative, depending on if you're a fan of this podcast or somebody who's forced to talk to me in real life. But it's not just about me. If you ask anybody in the Michigan State University Film Studies program about Dr. Justice Nealon, they will have nothing but positive things to say about him. Um, As much as we might uh, dislike each other in the program, uh, it's a very common widespread factor that we all have a whole lot of respect for justice. And I am very honored to finally have him on the podcast. If by chance you're not associated with Michigan State University if you've never stepped foot in the state you could very well know him as an author of many books he's written feeling modern the eccentricities of public life Uh, multiple books on film film noir hard-boiled modernity and the cultures of globalization which he co-authored with Jennifer Fay he's also the co-editor of contemporary film directors at the University of Illinois Press which is a series of books on directors he wrote one of those books the one on david lynch which is an incredible book i can't recommend it enough if you're a fan of david lynch uh, you definitely have to read it i've probably even mentioned it on this very podcast uh, roll the tapes go go back if you if you listen to the blue velvet episode i'm pretty positive i name dropped that book at one point point. His most recent book is called Happiness by Design, Modernism and Media in the Eames Era. And he joined me today to talk about the classic film In a Lonely Place, directed by Nicholas Ray, starring Humphrey Bogart and Gloria Graham. If you haven't seen the movie... I highly recommend you go watch it and come back. This is one of the greatest conversations I've ever had the pleasure of participating in in the history of this show. So I'd hate for you to miss it. So definitely watch the film if you haven't and come back. And if you are back by now or if you've already seen the film, without any further ado, please enjoy this very special episode of We Are Movies. Well, I, I appreciate you doing this. Oh, it's my pleasure, truly. I uh, we've we've been talking about it since I think since before we left for Film in Britain, I brought it up uh, to you and Pete. has it been that long? Yes. And I was okay. four I was four episodes into this podcast at that time too. So ah. uh, or three. I hadn't even done yeah, I hadn't even done the episode with Ryan Hoppenworth yet. So um now that it's established, I've finally uh, been able to swing <laughs> the good guests um, no it's been thanks.
1: it's a real honor to, to be on the show
0: oh thank you well, it's an honor to have you and um, I, I, usually I start off with people asking them if movies are important to them uh, um, now it's obviously a, a pretty important part of your career I, I guess yeah where do you think it started for you can you pinpoint a place
1: um, yeah so I should say that I didn't come to film studies from a background or a family with sort of canonical film investments. My, my, my parents had, you know, they were lovers of cinema, movie, movies and movie going was a part of my childhood. But, um, you know, there wasn't a sort of list of great movies that we were supposed to be watching and, and things like that. And I think I really didn't become invested in film in any substantial way until I was in college and we didn't have a, I went to a small liberal arts college called Grinnell College and we didn't have a film studies program. I was a, an English major, actually it was an English and Spanish double major. And um, I think the classes that I took where I really started to understand film form and film aesthetics were actually classes in Spanish. They were sort of classes in Spanish culture and Spanish cinema. And then I think my first serious film studies class I took when I, I studied in Spain for a year, my junior year in college, and, and took a, um, a class on Spanish cinema. And so, um, and you know, obviously, this was sort of at a moment when Almodovar was sort of at the height of his right. powers and, and fame. Um, but I didn't um, at that point know that I would be mm-hmm. devoting my professional life to film studies, um, I decided to apply to graduate programs in English literature rather than film studies. um, And uh, I did my PhD at Indiana University in Bloomington. And somewhere in that first year at IU, I realized that I could, how I could sort of incorporate some of my intellectual interests in early 20th century modernism and the avant-garde with my kind of, dawning interests and in, or nascent interests in, in film studies. And um, I got really lucky because I um, uh, one of the first classes that I took at IU as a grad student was taught by a really wonderful scholar named James Nairmore who's a scholar of the film noir among many other things. And um, I saw in Jim, who's really sort of a, been a, a essential sort of mentor of mine my career, a way to sort of balance my interests in, in modernism with my, my interests in, in cinema. Um, and I think later that first year, I also took a grad seminar in the film noir specifically, and that sort of launched my interest in, in noir, but it was really kind of Jim's um, uh, model. Um, this is someone, you know, who, who at, I think his first book was on Virginia Woolf, and I had written my writing sample for graduate school on on Wolf and and I saw in Jim someone who could both be deeply invested in literary modernism and someone who, you know, had a serious set of uh, intellectual commitments to cinema that came actually for Jim through Orson Welles um, first. So oh. that kind of launched me on my path. And then I was I was hired at, um, in 2002 at MSU um, to teach both classes in um, modernist literature and in film studies. And so I was kind of splitting my time um, in my teaching um, and my scholarly research between modern and contemporary literature and film studies. But really over the last 15 years, my my work has been um, largely in in film studies um, and that's where my publications have been. Um, So that's kind of how I got
0: here. Well, speaking of your publications, In the the book you co-authored, um, film noir, hard boiled modernity, and the cultures of globalization. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's obviously a very important part of that book that you're acknowledging the global aspect of film noir and exactly. its origins. When you first started getting into that genre, were you already coming at it from the international perspective, or did you start with American films?
1: That's a great question. So I think because I, you know, my introduction to it was through both. Jim Jim was just Jim Nairmore was just finishing this book um, his book more than night film noir in its context when I started it at IU um, and that book while it's, it's it's rooted in largely in in the US um, it acknowledged that film noir as a kind of invention, a critical invention had a um, international and transnational context and so I think I had a sense of the sort of, um, global and transnational dimensions of noir from the way that Jim introduced me to the genre. And in fact, um, the, the grad seminar that I took, um, not taught by Jim that first year of, of graduate school was also sort of a, attuned to these um, appearances of, of noir in various national cinemas and national context. So I think, you know, my, my introduction to the genre, um, you know, I, I was aware of that, but I think over time and really it was it came through te- teaching noir at msu um and actually i remember having a conversation with a, a dear friend and former colleague jen Fay, who now teaches at vanderbilt university was who you co-authored the book of, with right yeah exactly yeah. who i who i um who's a dear friend of mine and, and we were at a i think it was a society for cinema media studies conference in london and we were having lunch and we started talking about a course that we would like to teach that really keyed in on Noir as a global phenomenon, and and so we you know started brainstorming the kinds of films we might want to do and what that course might look like, and then we we taught the course and co-taught the course together, and we used the um, that experience of team teaching the course as a way to to basically research the book, which we then co-wrote together, and that was a, a total delight to do. Um,
0: yeah, I well when we. First one when we went to film in Britain and we were signing up for the classes, one of your classes was it was a, a genre class and it was focused on British Noir. And I remember looking at that and as the you know, uh it, it kind of makes you realize how little you think how little you actually do know about a film, because I remember thinking British Noir. Like <laughs> I could I could rattle off maybe 20 30 titles of Noir films, and I don't think right. any of them were British. Yeah, um, exactly. And but that brings me to where I think you talked a bit at that time about the flexibility of what it even means for a film right. to be noir, that a noir, let's say something from the seventies that you could classify as noir is, could virtually just be a different genre of film than the 1940s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure,
1: I mean, this is, and, and here's where, again, I, it's its hard to, I don't, I can't really overstate the importance of, of Jim's own thinking here and shaping my approach to the genre. But you know, in More Than Night, Jim is one of the, the first scholars to really frame noir as a, a kind of critical invention, right? This, this, this term um, is a term used by a particular generation of French critics starting in 1946 to retroactively name a, a kind of mood in a series of um, Hollywood films that they see under particular conditions following the war. And I think one of the, you know, enduring legacies of, of that reframing of noir is to say, there there is a set of films that we now call films noir, and we're always sort of ad- adding to mm-hmm. that canon. But it's also a, a fantasy that critics retroactively project upon the past. Um, and so, um, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a, you know, it's a cinephiles category, and you, and you can always locate a new film noir. When I teach the genre to undergraduate students, it's, it's sometimes hard to, to get um, folks' heads around the fact that you know this is not a genre with partic- a set of particular features. Um, that this is a you know a constructed critical category that evolves over time, right? And mm-hmm. one of the things that you know one of the thrusts of 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 Jim's thinking on noir, and I think that of a lot of people writing after him, is that um, know what you want to do is think about the conditions under which one calls a film a film noir and why one calls a film a film noir and so i've I've always been interested in the 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 kind of um, the sort of affective emotional set of qualities in any given film that may call that may that may encourage anyone to say that's a film noir right and and um in that sort of initial French invention of the noir, of the film noir after the war, and in, in the first book-length study of um, uh, American films called uh, *The Panorama of American Film Noir*, which was published in 1955, the co-authors, the two French co-authors of that book, in the introduction describe noir as a as a kind of affective complex, and they use five adjectives to describe noir: erotic, oniric bizarre although the french word is a a sort of hard to translate term called insolite Mm. um, ambivalent and cruel so (laughs) when i'm thinking about noir and i think is this a film noir is this not a film noir if it's not some combination of erotic oniric, bizarre ambivalent and cruel it doesn't really cut the mustard in my book
0: i suppose if you look at the films that are just widely in the canon Believed to be noir. And if you look at their IMDB, it says their film noir. Um when you look at, let's say, films from the 1970s that are considered noir, you have might have a film like Chinatown, which is pretty much everyone can call it that because it directly evokes sort of like the very like the rigid the iconography and the uh sort of specific characters, the stock characters and stuff that you would see in a something that we'll consider a noir from the 1940s right right, right. um a film like nicholas rogues performance sure. uh fits all of the criteria you list yeah. then but yeah. does not subscribe to any of the iconography uh, right. so right. It, it's i i guess some people place boundaries on it similar to like
1: the western where it's like yeah. it has to have these very specific yeah. things and i is, think i mean on some basic level that that's just the, the wrong way to, to think about noir and and and, you know, I mean, it's also often thought that there's a, a sort of dominant visual style in film noir, but of course, you know, there are all kinds of visual styles associated with film noir. There are high key film noirs, there are films noir in color and so on. So um, I think it's it's sort of less productive, again, to think about it as a stable genre with a set of particular right. um, features or qualities. But you I mean, your point about, you know, the 70s moment in a film like um, uh, taxi driver or Chinatown, you know, is, is really important because at a, at a certain moment, at, at that point, the, the, the language of film noir, the term film noir in the, in the 60s and 70s had started, that was in circulation. And that group of cine, sort of cinephilic um, American directors that became, you know, the new Hollywood, they, they ha- they, that, that term existed then as a term. But when, mm. you know, when, when Nick Ray is setting out to make In a Lonely Place, you know, right. there's no, he's not aware of anything called the film noir at that point. He is later, right? But this would be a film that would be marketed as a thriller or a mystery or, you know, uh, a melodrama.
0: Right. Well, yeah. And we'll, uh, there, there's some things about In a Lonely Place and how it does somewhat meet our 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 attempts at categorizing what can be a noir and what can't yeah. be. Before I had ever seen a noir I, a, a film that would be considered film noir, I, I would have told you it was an image of a detective walking down the street at night with a voiceover talking about how he didn't trust a certain dame
1: <laughs> right, <voice laughs> or over. something. And yeah, low-key lighting.
0: Right, and even in the yeah. canon of like, what is what are the classics of film noir? A lot of those don't even meet that very specific right. criteria. More often than not, it's it's a man in trouble Uh, what was your first encounter with in a lonely place do you remember I you know I was
1: thinking about this I I think my first encounter was that that first year of graduate school honestly um, when and it wasn't a it wasn't a film that was on the syllabus of the graduate seminar that I took which actually was about it was coming at noir specifically thinking through critical race theory so it was a class around whiteness um in film noir but we had a, so we had a list of required films and then we had a, a long list of recommended films and at that point because i was just getting obsessed with the genre i was trying to see everything i could and so i um we had a, a great video store in downtown bloomington and i i rented on vhs and saw it um in that context and i was um totally blown away by it i mean i obviously had seen some of the um You know, I had seen John Huston's version of the Maltese Falcon with Bogart. I'd seen Bogart in in The Big Sleep. Um, I I think I'd maybe seen one Gloria Graham movie at that point beyond um, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Um, And I just was so struck by the romanticism of the movie. Uh, You know, it has a kind of seriousness about human beings in love and this sort of like mutual incomprehension at the core of, of um, human relationships. There's this sort of, you know, obviously mutual suspicion and skepticism and and this kind of, just this kind of basic incomprehens- incomprehension at the core of romantic relationships that I really was into. And, and I think I was also um, struck by its handling of emotion um, that it's like both, unsentimental and cruel in a way but it's also deeply sentimental um, mm. and romantic in other ways and it thinks of all these sort kind of clever ways to kind of have its sentimentalism and yet distance itself from it ironically at the same time and um so it just struck me it's like a really um mature movie about um human relationships and i, I love the ambiguity of the ending and I, at this i think at this point i only had a kind of a, a, a sort of dawning sense of like who Nicholas Ray was or that there was this sort of auteur named Nicholas Ray and, and mm. what this might've meant um, for him at that moment. I was, I was really more struck by just, yeah, the romanticism of it and the emotional complexity of it.
0: When I first watched this, it was, I, I definitely had my expectations going in. When, when you go in saying, okay, this is film noir, this stars Humphrey Bogart, and it's uh, a murder mystery you know everything i know from from the big sleep or from the maltese falcon i i go in with all these expectations which i would say in the first 10-15 minutes uh immediately go away yeah. <laughs> i would say it's it's ostensibly a, a murder mystery but the movie and the characters could not be less interested in the mystery itself because (laughs) it is more it's 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 a a romance right as you as you said i I remember when when the when they do introduce the this the the main conflict of this girl that you were with last night was killed my first thinking is oh well now Humphrey Bogart has to solve the murder but then he he he's so disinterested and he just kind of goes ah poor kid <laughs> and brushes it off <laughs> and, and then it kind of sets you on this path if I have no idea where this movie could go after this right right um, I mean Humphrey Bogart I think you know this is quite a departure from yeah the roles he was known for but I've also read yeah. that this is the closest to Humphrey Bogart the man uh, have you have you Right about this. yeah
1: I, no absolutely <laughs> i mean i think you know if you think about it if you compare his performance as dick Steele, mm. you, you know even to the maltese falcon or um the big sleep you know obviously he had developed this reputation as a kind of quintessential tough guy he'd also had this sort of wartime you know romantic lead um in in casablanca and to have and have not but but in 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 a lonely place, that sort of stoic tough guy while it's still there, turns in this really dark (laughs) direction. And so you get this like wildly unhinged, volatile, disturbing, self-destructive performance. And, you know, that sort of core of masculine self-control and self-possession that is so much, uh, it's at the center of a film like, you know the Maltese Falcon the big sleeve—that sort of unflappable, unflappable quality—that um, just goes away, and and oh, yeah. and you get this much more sort of unhinged and fragile um, masculinity, which I know you know. I hope we can talk a little bit more about. But yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, so the film is very aware of, um, you know, and and when when people are sort of seen through the diegesis of the film, it's picking up on Bogart's own reputation for you know for violent outbursts um you may have you know heard some of these stories about about not just bogart sort of public fights with his with his wives which you know he was well known for but also you know this particular incident in which he had a he had a friend um and and he and his friend would go to this particular club and nightclub in new york and they had this habit of they they constructed they got these like three foot high stuffed pandas which they called girlfriends and they had this whole thing where they would set them at a table in this nightclub called the El Morocco. And at one point, uh, a young woman um, came over and, and sort of touched the panda, moved the panda off the table and Bogart flew into a rage and and, and the woman pressed charges. And so there were these sort of public you know, incidents and, and and Bogart had developed not just an on-screen persona associated with a certain kind of masculine volatility, but this, this um, off-screen, um, persona at the same time. And, and so there's that, and then there's also, you know, this, this other internal um, dimension to the film that has to do with Nicholas Ray's own relationship with, with Gloria Graham and the sort of fraught nature of um, of that relationship. Um, they were married at the time and their marriage is coming apart. And so some of the sort of dynamics around masculine control um, uh, are, are sort of Working through that that relationship and get inflected in Bogart's performance. So yeah, that that the sort of the unhinged nature of Bogart's masculinity in the film, you know, is both intersecting with his sort of changing star text and it's also picking up on you know real life understandings of of who Humphrey Bogart was and and also you know who Nicholas Ray was.
0: Right. And, and I think it's also one of the earliest cases of uh, Bogart playing a character who's sort of past their prime, right? Like he's, he's, yeah. he's That's kind true. of, he's playing an older man in the movie and, and I think that's one of the most refreshing things. I always say like, you know, there, there's always that point in an actor's career where if, if it's like John Wayne in Rio Bravo and he's supposed to have a relationship with Angie Dickinson and you're kind of like, <laughs> I think you got to start moving on to playing the older guy in these movies. <laughs> um, I do want to talk about uh, masculinity in this movie. Um, sure. First, I want to talk about Gloria Grant because I think yeah. her character's obviously very important I mean it's her it's the perspective shift in the movie that kind of reveals that uh Gloria Graham just like you I I only knew her from oh I knew her from It's a Wonderful Life and then I saw her in one other film that I watched in your class which was Crossfire yeah um where she plays uh Ginny short for Virginia I remember because it's her very first line in the movie (laughs) um but yeah her character Laurel in this movie I read uh was uh, you know uh, Lauren Bacall was considered and Ginger Rogers was considered and um you know Gloria Graham, not a, a big name not not an above the title star right. at the time she, she there's something very very original and very specific about her performance she has this like perpetually raised eyebrow and she's always very she, she's curious and she's very, she's like she's a bit deadpan yeah I mean how would you describe what sets her performance apart from how somebody else might have
1: played the role? yeah well, I mean, I, I should—I I meant to say when when you asked about my my first memory of the film. I mean, I, I mentioned that this is my one of my first encounters with Gloria Graham, and I just found her so like beguiling and compelling and alluring. And you know, she she does wonders with her eyebrows. And if, actually, if you want to see sort of the, the the most magnificent expression of of what Gloria Graham can do with her eyebrows, uh, check out. Um, uh, like I'm the name of the film for a second. Oh, A Woman's Secret, A Woman's mm-hmm. Secret, which is a, a film, another Nicholas Ray film, um, where she has this amazing, she plays a singer and there's an amazing sequence where she's um, singing a, a, a love song um, and she does absolute wonders with her eyebrows. But yeah, I mean, I think she um, became a kind of axiom of a, a sort of seductress um, in the film noir and, and you know, um, this is the first film, I think uh, Crossfire, it's really the, the first film that establishes that side of of Gloria Graham and then it gets developed in, in a lonely place. and then we you know we see it in other um, films, Noir. Uh, she makes a couple films with with uh, Fritz Long, a film called The Big Heat, and another a remake of of, of Rene Noir's Le Betty called Human Desire. Um, but in this film, there's this kind of, you know, combination of the sort of alluring seductress and then she gets to do this sort of nurturing mother um, thing in that very strange moment or sequence in the film where you know, um, they have fallen in love and, and we get the sort of idol of, of you know, um, Gloria Graham um, sort of typing Dick's scripts and all of that. Um, and then you know, she gets to serve as this sort of betrayer later on Um, so in a way you could say like those you know the seductress the mother the the betrayer these are sort of very cliched you know gender roles um, for for uh, uh, an actress at the time Um, but at the same time there's something about the way she plays the role where there's this sort of quality of knowingness and vulnerability that I, I I find fascinating and I think the film is actually really interested in her perspective you know I mean it 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 is a film that you know in various moments of unrestricted narration that we get. You know, we are with Laurel subjecting Dix to a certain kind of scrutiny, and and so we're asked to sort of identify with her suspicion and her fear and her um, anxiety, and and I think she you know she does extraordinary things with her dawning awareness of. The, the sort of the monstrousness in this person that she's fallen in love with so in a lot of ways she you know she kind of trans she she transcends these sort of stock um, types um that she's that she um, you know is, is playing in 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 the film in various moments um, and she you know she's also I mean you probably know this but you know she herself like as she started sort of perfecting this kind of character she would go on to play in other Films noir, you know, she she had this rather um, tragic and sort of sad, you know, off-screen life. Um, she she was uh, perpetually dissatisfied with her with her looks, and you know had plastic surgery after plastic surgery, and and had a, a number of sort of disastrous. Um, romantic you know, relationships, including one with Nicholas Ray and then Nicholas Ray's son, who she later would marry and so on. So there's this kind of like tra- tragic core to her that I think comes through um, in, in the film.
0: Well, Yeah, and the, I mean, my understanding is this movie was filmed during the process of her separation from Mm -hmm. Nicholas Ray so there there's as the movie is about a a relationship that withers uh due to mistrust it's like I I I was reading that by the end of it Nicholas Ray was sleeping on the set and not telling people that they were separated because they were being professional about it
1: yeah Um, yeah yeah that's true and I mean you, you probably also saw this that Nicholas Ray uh forced her into this sort of absurd contract um where you know she had to and I, i'm quoting here from this contract supposedly that my husband shall be entitled to direct control advise construct and even command my actions during the hours from 9am to 6pm every day except sunday during the filming of in a lonely place in every conceivable situation his will and judgment shall be considered superior to mine and shall be and shall pre- prevail um, i mean you know so that that kind of like the, the fact that that sort of dynamic is you know this. This marriage is collapsing. You've got this. You know director who's exerting that level of control, and then you've got you know that getting worked through her is It just adds a certain depth and complexity of what we're watching.
0: Speaking of Nicholas Ray, I've I, so I've yeah. only seen this is be embarrassing to say at this point. I've only seen three Nicholas Ray films. What have uh, you seen? I, I've seen Rebel Without a Cause and um, Bigger, than, bigger life. than Life. Bigger yeah. Than Life, yeah, sorry. The, yeah. The, that's my favorite one and it slipped my mind for yeah. a, a moment. Bigger Than that's Life an amazing and, film. and then this. And yeah. and this is just, I mean, this is a purely pedestrian uh, just sort of observation, but from those three movies and very little <laughs> else, it's very easy to just say, um, Nicholas Ray has something to say about masculinity.
1: Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's,
0: it's. I mean, it's in all three of those movies very strongly. Uh, yeah. His criticisms, I suppose, of masculinity. Yeah. Do you see in his career? Do you see like a, a, an evolution of that thought, or do you think it's just it's just always there?
1: Um, I think it is always there. Um, I mean, let's let's sort of think through the the films. We can talk together about the films that you've named, you know, and mm-hmm. sort of maybe compare what In a Lonely Place is doing, you know, vis a vis Bigger Than Life or Rebel Without a Cause. Um, I mean, you know, I think it's fair to say that Nicholas Ray, consistently in his career, is interested in these kind of marginal white masculinities, right? And he's and he's critical of certain kind of pressures that produce um, some version of a so-called normal or normative masculinity. And and that's all over, you know, Rebel Without a Cause, and it's all over Bigger Than Life, and we can sort of talk a little bit about that. So, you know, he's he's interested in the sort of pressures of the nuclear family, pressures of sort of social conformity and and so on. And and he had he's on record as saying that there's a similar kind of pressure brought to bear on Bogart's masculinity in a lonely place. So he said, for example, and this I I find this kind of curious, Bogart was under the pressure of society, accusing an innocent man, released his hostility. There it was a social pressure. Of accusation and suspicion, right? So I think, you know, if you if you think about comparing this to Bigger Than Life, and Bigger Than Life, it's it's obvious that the James Mason character, the school teacher, you know, he experienced his his sort of drift out of the middle class in the beginning of the film when he has to take a take on a job, you know, as a taxi dispatcher, doesn't tell his wife because he's embarrassed. Um, and, he, and he feels kind of emasculated. And then when he gets on that experimental um, steroid treatment, you know, he, he is um, enacting this kind of uh, um, per, uh, sort of parody of a range of, of mm. sort of normative masculine gestures and, and protocols, right? And, and we, see that, we see that, you know, those normative masculine acts, gestures submitted to sort of exaggeration and, and critique you know, in a film like um, uh, Rebel Without a Cause, you know, we get another, a slightly different dynamic because, you know, the, the, the problem with Stark, the James Dean character is in part that he, you know, he has this failed figure of masculinity in his father, who's not, who's not living up to a certain kind of standard of, of, of masculine behavior. And, you know, those, those amazing scenes where Jim Stark is sort of berating his father for not effectively putting his mother into her place, so there's this this disturbing dimension to to what's happening there. In in A Lonely Place, you know, I'd be curious to hear, Johnny, your thoughts on this. For me, when I'm thinking about what Ray says about the social pressure on Bogart, you know, I think you see it primarily in the way um, he's figured as a kind of man of culture, as a kind of Mm -hmm. estate, right, as a sort of aristocrat of taste and you know a scene that I'd love to talk about with you if you're interested is like the, the scene with Mildred early in the film yeah um, and and I'd love to you know kind of get your thoughts on that cuz I know you said that you know this is billed as a thriller and a and a mystery and then you know it's clear right away that that's not exactly what this is going to be about but that scene with Mildred is i think essential to thinking about how Ray's understanding masculinity in the movie. So tell me what you, what you remember of that scene and then we can maybe talk a little more about it.
0: Okay, so the, yeah, the scene with uh, Mildred where she's, he, he basically, he takes her home to summarize a book for him that he has to adapt yeah. into a screenplay. Um, uh, which you know, maybe we eventually we could also kind of talk about the meta mm-hmm. aspects of that. Mm-hmm. But, um, he one thing that really sh- stuck out to me was the uh, at a certain point while she's explaining the story, it cuts to his POV, she's talking Absolutely. directly to the camera. That's right. That's right. Um, and I, I mean, you don't even really need a, a film degree to say that it we're supposed to probably identify with him in that scene, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess, I mean, that, that stuck out to me. And also the fact that, I don't know, he seems to barely be listening to her. Did
1: did you, did you? Oh yeah. Absolutely. I I mean, I I would even go one further and say, he's not just barely listening to her, but he's, he's actively mocking her. Mm, Um, And, you know, I mean, so that scene gets set up because, you know, we're, we're in Paul's right. And, and, and Dix has that run in with his former girlfriend. Who says
0: she used, she used to read to him.
1: She right. used to read to him, right? And yeah. and there's some great, there's a few great lines there. But he, he, she says, "Do you look down on all women, or just the ones you know?" Right? Mm. And that and that sort of sets up this scene with Dix and and Mildred. But you know, it seems to me that um, Mildred is figured in this way that is kind of typical of a certain um, uh, tendency in in um, movies like this and and novels like this as a kind of figure of bad taste or poor taste, right? She she is so for example, you know, Mild uh, Ray goes out of his way to show Mildred mispronouncing things, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and saying you know she means to say risque, but she says it's a very risky scene when she's repeating the plot, and she mispronounces a polo, and and you get the sense that part of Dix's resentment and part of Dix's frustration with his experience in Hollywood. Part of the reason Dix is so dissatisfied that he has to, you know, think about adapting what is clearly this trashy novel is that not just that it's trash, but that the trash is kind of gendered in a particular mm. way, right? And and there's a so there's a fairly, I think, conventional gendering of mass culture in this film that we see through um, through Mildred through the Althea Bruce subplot, and you know, Dix is figured as this. Um, Character who's who sort of stands above that and is sure. in some sense superior to that to that world, right? And that audience. And I think, doesn't he say something like, Tell it to me like you would tell it to your aunt Cora? Hmm. So, there he's also like Dix's, he's um, making
0: himself and, a feminine figure for the
1: exactly. Right, and, his, right. and his anxiety about what this what a version of adapting this book may be is is not just that it's trash, but that it's trash that's written for a feminine, it's a trash that's right. written, written for a femina, feminine, feminine. Audience and 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 that participate that sort of precipitates his own feminization or his own mm. emasculation. So in that way, there's a kind of comparison between dicks there and what we see in in James Mason's character and Bigger Than Life.
0: Right, right. Well, and, and he's um, I mean, it's kind of established like he hasn't had a hit since before the war, and he's kind exactly. of he's, he's being pushed to the margins. There's an early yeah. scene where he's he's arguing with a filmmaker saying, oh, you're a popcorn salesman. Like he's, exactly. you know, he looks down on the art, the the crap that's coming out now. If he, if he relates femininity to the trashier entertainment yeah. that's pushed him out, that I guess contributes to his toxic masculinity then? Precisely. That, okay.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. that's my sense that like when, when Ray is thinking about the sort of social pressure on dicks, you know, part of that pressure is this kind of, Leveling horizon of middlebrow taste and mediocrity that he associates with a novel like Althea Bruce, with certain crappy Hollywood adaptations of said novels, and with an entire sort of feminized audience, and and that you know, and his desire to sort of stand above that, or to think that he's different than that, or better than that, is part of what you know precipitates this kind of rage, you know. But that whole um, that whole plot that whole scene, none of that is in the Dorothy Hughes source novel. And I don't know if you're interested right. in talking a little bit about the differences between the novel and the film, oh, but sure. I, I, will, I will say, I mean, I don't know if you've read the novel. It's an amazing book. Um, and Dorothy Hughes is a really fascinating, serious writer. Um, but, but, um, but Ray and his screenwriter um, have, have gone out of their way to, um, I mean, Mildred Atkinson is a character in the source novel. Um, and she is murdered by the, by the serial killer character that Dix is in the novel. But there's no, there's no, it's not a, the novel isn't a Hollywood novel. The novel doesn't have this meta dimension. It doesn't have this reflective dimension. Nothing in that scene that we just have talked about um, with, with Mildred um, is in the novel. That's specific to what Ray is, is thinking through.
0: Well, yeah. And I mean, that kind of that's when I when I said that that part of the story is a little meta, it's that Dix is not interested in adapting the actual novel. And obviously, the movie is so incredibly different from the novel. I'm part way through the novel right now. Um, what do you think of it? It's every I mean, it's everything you said, it's, it's definitely not going for what the movie is, because I mean, I think the movie's coming from a different perspective. It's coming from uh, people who are in Hollywood and, and kind of have something had they have feelings about that. Um,
1: exactly
0: the yeah. book yeah like as you said the book interestingly enough dicks is a serial killer unambiguously uh I, right. and um i mean do you see the book as just a springboard for the story that that these writers of nicholas ray wanted to tell or do you think that there is something thematically about that book that's still present in the movie
1: um yeah i mean so we'll maybe talk through some of the some of the differences and then we can sort of think about what what Ray gets out of it. So sure. so we talked about in the novel, you know, Dick Steele is a, is also a veteran.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and we haven't really talked about that that dimension of this kind of mask masculine pathology, but it's right. it's quite interesting because um, they bring and, that
0: back up multiple times. That's, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And his his in, buddy Brub, he knew from the exactly. war, right?
1: Exactly. Right. Um so yes, and and we're aligned with the perspective of, of Dix, the serial killer, from the start in the novel, and, and we stay with this point of view throughout. So that's another kind of key difference between the novel and the film is that you know as we talked about, Ray allows us to, you know, we're aligned with Dicks in certain ways and we're and in ways that make I think us as viewers uncomfortable. Um, but then we're also, you know, we get those various moments of unrestricted narration where we see Laurel and others begin to tell other stories about Dicks and kind of investigate investigate um, Dix. um in the novel um, he's a he, the the Dick Steele character is really he he's a kind of a con man um, mm-hmm. and a grifter he's living off of his uncle's uh, inheritance he's in this apartment um, it, it, of a sort of supposed friend who's out of town but then we later in the novel realize that he's he's murdered him and he he fabricates this identity as a um, a mystery writer but he it's clear that he's not a writer at all he's just sort of um grifting off of the of the, the money that he can get from from other people so in that way he's a lot more like i don't know if you know um patricia hyde novel the talented mr ripley which yeah. is how this kind of shape-shifting come in but he's much more kind of prototype of that the tom ripley character than, than dick Steele, um and um, the film you know, really gives us this, as we talked about, this sort of meta element, this Hollywood element where Dix is you know, this sort of cultural um, aristocrat. Um, I think one thing that happens in both the novel and the film though is, um, and I think one of the things Ray is taking and his screenwriter um, is taking from, from Hughes is they are both offering a kind of clinical anatomy of whatever kind of masculinity Dix represents. And, and in the novel, the Sylvia Nikolai character, right? Brub's wife's character. She's a really, she's a really interesting character. She actually um, uh, helps Brub uh, sort of catch Dick Steele at the end of the novel. She, she concocts a scenario that forces Dicks to kind of reveal himself. And, and, and then Dix confesses at the end of the novel. And Dix is com- convinced from the beginning that like Sylvia is, um, he describes her as someone who kind of digs under the surface and, and sort of understands that he's just a, a kind of fake and a fraud and, and has, has sort of performed a certain version of himself. And, and Dix's um, misogyny in the novel is, is, you know, Sylvia is a reliable target of, of Dix's misogyny. That, that's nowhere in the film, but I think the film does, you know, in the ways we started to talk about, share the novel's. Sympathy with the perspective of the woman who is attempting to kind of investigate um, mm-hmm. this 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 man and and the sources of his violence. So in the novel, it, that clearly happens through Sylvia. She does become a kind of a kind of detective, assisting um, assisting Brub.
0: Yeah, I guess it is, it is more of a detective novel in that case because the the mystery is solved in the movie off screen that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah
1: yeah and and you know the humby Burger dick dick says you know he, he basically solves the mystery he at does so oh, yeah. this guy's this guy's it's obviously what is it kessler yeah um, yeah It's obviously kessler
0: and you right. just you just assume he's kind of projecting and uh, or, or or that he's just kind of just being a jerk about it and and doesn't yeah. Really, but yeah the fact that he was entirely right about it is is is, is interesting
1: I'm Mike. And I'm Allison. We've both been guests on We Are Movies before. We love talking movies with Johnny. But I'm a jealous boy. You are. That's why we've decided to talk movies with with each other. other. We started our own podcast called You You Made Made Me Watch. Watch. Each week we make each other watch a movie the other has never seen. You Made Me Watch. New episodes every Friday.
0: One thing in the movie that's apparent early on is that uh, Dix is not really particularly disturbed by the murder or the concept of violence towards women. Um, You know, he looks at the pictures with no problem. Uh, And then one of, I'd say one of my favorite scenes is when he's with Brub and uh, Brub's wife, and he's, he's talking about the situation. He's, he's describing how he thinks the murder would have played out. And Uh, and he's having fun doing it. He's describing, he's, he's telling a story essentially. Yep. And he yep. he like pulls up a chair, he sits down and there's a moment in that that I, if there's anything I can like describe as pure cinema and like what I love <laughs> about movies, it's when it, he's he's really like perversely describing the yep. suffocation of the woman and he leans forward and there's like a little light that just illuminates just his face. Absolutely. Uh, which is a great moment because it's, you know, well, a it's kind of like he's kind of transcend, He's not here right now. He's in that moment, and it also kind of evokes what it would be like driving at night. The scene that he's describing, where it's just your face illuminated by the the, the mirror or something. Like. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's I, I love them. I mean, it, yes. And that moment, it's um, Ray is so great in that scene, at you know generating. Uh, his viewers suspicion and doubt about the Dick Steele character through the you know, really perverse, um, vicarious enjoyment that he gets in enacting this you know sadistic scenario. Um, but it's also, I mean, I, I've always, when I've taught that film in that moment, you know, which I think that scene, students are generally into, but when we get that particular moment of the high key, it has provoked laughter. Like students find it there's some sort of obviousness to what's going on with mm. visual style in that moment and and i've over the years started to think i, I think this is a moment that ray wants to be um it's not just a reflexive moment because as you've already indicated this is a movie that's about storytelling it's about hollywood it, ha- it has these kind of meta elements but it's also like a mo- a moment where i think the film is is laying bare its own artifice mm. i mean i think we're supposed to like this is a very you know, it's a highly constructed moment. And and I think Ray knows what he's doing here in in having that, you know, that sort of laid bare in such an obvious way. As as we started to talk about the motif of storytelling in the film is really interesting. I mean, it it, you know, it clearly, part of what Dick's, you know, um, storytelling for him is is a kind of mode of exerting control, right? It's, it's a kind of power um, and, you know, he, he, it's connected to his own sort of the way he is, his masculinity is rejuvenated through his encounter with Laurel. Um, his capacity to tell compelling stories is the sign of, you know, his re mm. um, in in the film. It's a disturbing, a, a disturbing scene through the sort of vicarious nature of the enjoyment um, and it's also, I mean, I, I'm curious to know what you make of of Brub vis-a-vis dicks <laughs> or, or yeah. Sylvia and Brub vis-a-vis dicks, because we, we get this in a lot of you know, I was thinking about comparing Ray's treatment of masculinity in this film to some of those other films that you mentioned, knowing of Ray's. I mean, we get a similar kind of pairing in Bigger Than Life, right, with the Walter Mathout character. Right. Right. I was Where we gonna get sort of the, the, the sort of normal yeah. average guy, right? And and so there's this sort of boring, normal, average guy, average masculinity, which is tedious. But, but also and somebody who's this...
0: comfortable in his masculinity. Precisely. Precisely.
1: Yeah. 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 I think, and I think Wally, his name's Wally. I think, right, the character's name. Yeah. Wally um, is more comfortable in it than than Brub. I mean, Brub seems to be um, he and my. There's that great scene with him and Sylvia where it's just the two of them. Right after, I think it's after. Dix has left, and he says something like, "He's an exciting guy," um, yeah, and, yeah. and and Brub is sort of drawn to you know Dicks the sort of qualities of danger in, in Dix. Um, and then there's that. Do you remember what that exchange? This to me is another one of those moments where it's like it kind of keys into something essential. Where um, uh, Sylvia says she starts using the language of abnormal and abnormal psychology, and so she's you know sort of pathologizing Dix, Brub says don't throw that college stuff in my face. <laughs> so like there's this other moment where like there's a kind of resentfulness on the yeah. part of a, a man with a certain kind of learning or knowledge possessed by a woman. So it's interesting to kind of connect to the Mildred situation in that. And then she says, i like you because you're attractive and average, I think she said Something like brother. that, yeah. Yeah, so, so we get like the, the, the version of masculinity is this sort of pathological, fragile, toxic masculinity in Dix. And then the sort of uh, average and boring on the other hand. And mm. and there's not much outside of that in this film.
0: But yeah, and in both cases, it's insecure
1: uh,
0: a little bit. Um,
1: absolutely, and
0: absolutely. One, one thing I like about that scene is it's kind of one long shot of Bogart d- d- delivering this monologue. And then, and he's, he's like describing, oh, he squeezes tighter and tighter and Brub's acting it out with his wife. And we cut back and brub already has her in a very tight embrace and she's like telling him to stop uh it, it, we don't see it happen but we just cut back and he is already like kind of beyond the choker and he's kind of he is all like joined he's 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 joined dicks in this moment of kind of losing his surroundings and what he's actually doing
1: absolutely and this is where i think you know when the, when you really sort of start digging into the film's analysis not just of masculinity but of a certain kind of violent masculinity it, it it's important to, to to show that it's not this is not just dicks like the film is interested in dicks but like there's this moment where we see that these tendencies or, or certain you know allure of this kind of violence is also there in brub right mm-hmm. and and more importantly like it's there in the, the actual murderer right this kessler character we're told like he's like the nice i can't remember how exactly he's described but you know, he's, he's, he's well-liked by, you know, um, Mildred's parents and, yeah. and, you know, and he's the, again, the normal, the normal male character. And, and so, it's, and, and so the, the violence is sort of at the, and the sort of pathology that is at the core of the movie is at the core of the, the normal and the average and the everyday. It's not in just one isolated individual and, and his damaged psychology.
0: I read the essay uh, by Imogen Sarah Smith. That's, I think, in the Criterion edition. I assume you own the Criterion edition. Uh, I,
1: you know, it's funny. I don't. I own the, I own an old, an older DVD.
0: Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say you still had the VHS for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) No,
1: I never owned owned the VHS.
0: Okay. Um, But uh, she says, uh, describing that scene, she says, Dix's face lights up with uh, sinister excitement as he inhabits the killer's ecstatic vengeance, though he insists his, quote unquote, artistic temperament would never allow him to dump Mildred's body from a moving car. Which kind of points out the sort of dichotomy with him where he has these... I mean, from the very first scene, we know that he has these violent outbursts, but he also has this um, at least the uh, illusion of prestige. He still believes himself to be dignified. And um, he, I I think you kind of see that. I mean, there's that moment when they uh, crash into the man on the road, he gets out and he beats the man to a bloody pulp. And then it almost looks like he's about to murder the man before Laurel stops him. And then later we find out that he paid for the man's hospital bills. And then a a similar thing kind of happens on a smaller scale with Mel, his agent at the end when he slaps Mel and, uh, and then later walks into the bathroom to, you know, sort of comfort him in sort of an emotionally distant way. Like he wants Mm -hmm. to apologize, but that's not something he does. I mean, do you, do you see as though that self righteous perspective and also that violent masculinity. Do you see those as being two conflicting things, or one and the
1: same? I think they're. I think they're. I think one is a kind of symptom of the other. I mean, I. Okay. I, I think. Um, I think the so your point about you know, qu- quoting Imogen, you know that that moment where he says I, I would never do it this way because it violates my artistic temperament. I mean, there's something um, so cold and cruel in that right so so there we see that like you know part of Dix's emotional pathology and his kind of being anesthetized to ways of feeling comes through through comes by virtue of his artistic temperament comes by virtue of his sort of status as an aesthete who hmm. sees the world through you know through style effectively and, and that there's a kind of longer history of of that kind of aestheticism being connected to a kind of coldness and cruelty and 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 a sort of aestheticization of, of violence, which is basically what you know what Dix is sort of describing in that in that scene that you you quoted Imogen's um, critique of, um, yeah no I mean I I think I, you you also mentioned Mel here I mean and we haven't really talked about Mel and Charlie and that whole dimension of the film but. I mean, some of the, the most uh, affecting moments, I mean, I, I think that moment where he hits Mel, you know, is, is extraordinarily disturbing. Mm. And, you know, and, and Ray has placed great weight in the film. And this is also typical of other Ray films on certain kinds of emotional bonds between men. Um, and Mel clearly is figured as part of whatever kind of family Ray thinks um, Dix and Laurel are going to produce, right? If if this romance is, is successful and it's it's devastating, right? To see that Mel is effectively enabling Dix's violence. I mean, doesn't he say right. something around that moment to, to Laurel? The, the truth of Laurel leaving him would, would devastate Dix that he, he, his ego can't take it, right? And Mel, Mel seems to exist to sort of preserve this and shore up this extraordinarily fragile masculinity and he you know and and enables this kind of behavior right you
0: know? yeah he, he does enable it and well in, in a way I still also I take him as as a bit of an audience surrogate in the way mm-hmm. that he he's kind of aware of everything he understands Dix's violent nature but he right. doesn't he doesn't see it as horrible enough that he he's he still uh, associates himself professionally and personally with dicks and he he's sort of rooting for their relationship in some ways but then when Absolutely. when laurel wants to leave at the end he's entirely understanding there's an immediate understanding of uh, this that i i see this fear i might even feel some of that same fear you know he can't necessarily feel the same fear that a woman who's intimately involved with dicks would be but as we see when he gets hit in the face like he is also a victim of Dix's temperament. Um, Absolutely.
1: And so I yeah, I seem
0: as, I guess, like a neutral point between the two of them.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and I mean, this, this also, there's a dimension of the film that we haven't talked about yet. And I don't know if you're interested in going there, but another part of the, um, going back to Ray's comment about the sort of social pressures that Dix feels, part of the, the film's climate of paranoia and suspicion Hmm. is connected to, you know, post-war Hollywood at this moment in the wake of HUAC and and the blacklist and the the character, the actor that plays um, Mel um, and then Art Smith is someone that was associated with Nicholas Ray from his days in leftist theater in in the 1930s. Um, A member of the Communist Party USA like Nicholas Ray and and Smith slash Mel is going to be blacklisted Shortly, um, he's going to be named as a communist by Elliot Kazan, a former friend of Ray's, and and so that that's another sort of level of the of the meta reflexive nature of the film that we haven't talked about that comes specifically through through the Mel character.
0: That always interests me, um, and. I do want to point out in the in my March Madness bracket, Elliot Kazan was defeated uh, immediately, which I can only assume <laughs> is because the the general public is aware that he was a Huac rat and uh, <laughs> doesn't approve. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean that's something I hadn't even into, I hadn't really thought of much at all. I was that, and that was something I wanted to ask you about was because there is the reoccurring uh, dialogue concerning the war and concerning that dix hasn't had a hit since before the war also one thing i noticed though when the cop who's not brub um the other lochner lochner Lochner. yes lochner Lochner.
1: uh
0: when lochner lists all of um dix's previous cases of violence they're all before world war ii Mm -hmm. uh, or at least the us's involvement in world war ii Mm -hmm. so you could so like that kind of analysis that you would try to like just to Put all of his violence on PTSD or something like that. That doesn't necessarily work because it's de- it's a part of who he was before the
1: war. That's Sorry. really interesting.
0: I I really had no thoughts at all about the politics of the movie. But if you think that relates, yeah, to-
1: yeah, yeah. Well, we talk about both. I mean, so in the in the novel, it's clear in the source novel, it's clear from the beginning that um, Dick Steele's obsession with power and and masculine power and control. He has, is he associates it with the war he describes what it feels like he was a pilot to be to fly and to experience this kind of self-containment and power and control and that is now lost following the war and and so when Hughes is giving this kind of anatomy of his violence um, it, it's it's sort of a response to changed gender norms following the war and his sort of lack of uh, sort of platforms for uh, control and mastery and this gets taken out on a number of the 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 um, women characters in the in the novel in the film i hadn't even i hadn't i never noticed what you just described which is really interesting which is that um when the film tries to sort of source dix's violence it goes out of its way to say that this pre-existed the war which is really interesting because i think uh, this is a film that's often talked about as part of a series of films noir having to do with, you know, the trauma of, of, you know, returning veterans and, and th- their sort of maladjustment to the conditions of post-war society, right? And, and their reckoning with changing gender norms and, and, and women in new roles and, and how that produces this kind of reactionary backlash, paranoia, and this sort of defense, this whole sort of defensive and fragile masculinity. So, um, so, if you wanted to read in a lonely place that way, I suppose you could go there. But, but what you're saying is really interesting, which is that Ray goes out of his way to say, I'm not going to let you source it just there, right? That, that, that there's this more deep seated history of violence that maybe the war you know, compounded or, or, or something, but, but pre-existed that pre existed that. Totally fascinating. I mean, I, I guess I would say when I teach films like this and when I think about film noirs politics, it's important to think about the extent to which any given film is offering a sort of psychological explanation for the crime and the violence or whether it's offering offering a kind of sociological explanation. And I think, you know, the more films noir tend towards psychologizing, the, the more sort of depoliticized they tend to be because they say, this is just, you know an individual isolated pathology, right? That's not the product of uh, larger social uh, or institutional structures. And I think um, Nicholas Ray as a artist, and this is clear in other films of his, does opt for a, a sort of sociological or sociological explanations on violence and this kind of behavior. And I think we, see, we, I think we see that in Rebel a Cause, we see it in Bigger Than Life, we see it in a film that he actually made with Humphrey Bogart before this called Knock on Any Door, which is a kind of social problem film. A movie about both the death penalty and juvenile delinquency that is trying to sort of get at the sources of teenage delinquency and rage and and criminality and violence. So, my sense would be in this film, you know, Ray is trying to move beyond just the kind of individualizing of the of of the pathology. Um, The the political angle. I mean, this is you know, Ray was a highly committed leftist active in left-wing theater, associated with a group called Theater of Action. Um, uh, In the 1930s, associated with the group theater in Kazan, um, someone who worked for various branches of the New Deal, FDR's New Deal, worked with the Department of Agriculture and the Resettlement Administration, um, worked for the Office of War Information, doing propaganda broadcasts in the 1940s during the war. Um, strangely, where a lot of Ray's left-wing peers were either blacklisted or, you know, found their careers significantly damaged by the blacklist, he, he managed to be protected by that, um, largely because of his relationship to um, Howard Hughes, who ran RKO at the time, and and was able to shield Ray from persecution. But one way I think to think about the paranoia in the film is that you know Ray and and the kind of meta level of the film is that he's you know, working through that climate of post-war, HUAC-fueled, Red Scare-based paranoia. And, and um, w- when I keep going back to that sort of cryptic statement of race, you know, the social pressures that this Dick's character is under, you know, we started talking about how that, some of that is just about a kind of gendering of mass culture and sort of post-war conformity. But I think part of it is also about, um, about the sort of uh, po- conservative poli- uh, political scene. And what is happening to a number of Ray's friends. And it's never named directly in the film, right? Um, but it's but it's there. If you're if you're interested in seeing another Ray film, I'd highly recommend his Western um with John Crawford called Johnny Guitar, which is amazing. And and I've been meaning that is actually that. yeah, it's really, it's really great. And there's a there's a great documentary called uh Red Hollywood by by Tom Anderson that has clips from a range of films, um, and, and one of them is a clip from um, Johnny Guitar that sort of reads scenes in Johnny Guitar through the lens of Ack and and sort of Red Scare paranoia, and I think the same can be done and has been done with In a Lonely Place.
0: And I suppose that, similar to the protection that uh, Howard Hughes provided for Nicholas Ray, the, the film itself is kind of protected by the fact that it is this singular story as you said and yeah you know it's not something like high noon or maybe even crossfire which is more specifically obsessed with you know the structures and 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 the institution and the problems that arise from that that's not here on the surface at least
1: exactly it's that's so smart johnny and 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 yeah i mean as you know um dimitric and and adrian scott the producer of crossfire you know we're both Blacklisted members mm-hmm. of the original Hollywood 10. And I think it's fair to say that, yeah, one of the things that happens in a film like In a Lonely Place is that it it reveals this political um, climate, not by taking it on directly in the way Crossfire does and having this sort of highly charged film about anti-Semitism, sort of through the through the genre of of the thriller, but it comes at it really obliquely through. Questions of mood, right, and questions of 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 affect. You can watch the film many times and not pick up on that that mm. dimension of the film, unless you're unless you you know you're sort of steeped in the history.
0: And that kind of uh, I I mean I, I guess this is a, a bit of a digression, but um, comparing something like Crossfire to something like Sapphire. Uh, which mm. we watched, uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah, how they approach a bigoted murder, murder murderer, basically, right. uh, uh, a hate crime. I, I, I kind of see Crossfire as being a distinctly more leftist approach to that because of. How it's a it's a soldier. It's somebody you know, I, I supposedly like disenfranchised by right. his country, and uh, what Sapphire is about an upper class individual committing something right. purely out of hate, which could maybe be seen as the more neoliberal approach to right anti racism in film.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting to think about those movies together because you know, yeah, these are these are both. You know, you would call them they're, they're sort of social problem pictures that are that are foregrounding, you know, a social problem and and giving what can be seen, you know, depends on how you you view them, but like a kind of dogmatic or heavy handed take on, uh, you know, a particular uh, issue of social concern. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think part of what's so cool about a film like Crossfire, it doesn't it doesn't pull its punches, and it, you know, in in the Robert Ryan character, the 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 murderous GI, the person who's revealed to have committed the, the hate crime, um, the act of anti-Semitism. You know, it's also made clear that he is a racist cop. You know, and mm. he, he makes these um, racist comments about his time on the St. Louis police force, and and so yeah, I mean th- that film is. I think it's leftist credentials on crime, and and the sort of sources for crime are 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 really clear. And, you know, this is where a film like In a Lonely Place is, it's doing something different. You know, I mm. mean, it, it, as we said, where we started, it's it, at the heart of it, it's a love story. Um, yeah. but, but, um, but the politics is there if you look.
0: Is there anything, have you taught this film
1: in class? Yeah, yeah, I've taught it many times. Um, I've never actually taught it in a noir class specifically. Okay. Um, i've taught it in the context of film history and theory classes when we're talking about auteurism and this is some a dimension that we haven't really talked about with ray but you know he he was really a, a sort of fetish director of the of the critics at du cinema and um so when i'm teaching auteurism as a as a kind of discourse as it emerges first in post war france in Cahiers, and then it you know, gets picked up in the us in in the work of folks like Andrew Serres and then uh, Pauline Kael's critique about tourism. I use this group of essays that were written, published in Cahiers Cinéma as a kind of dossier on Nicholas Ray to teach, to teach Ray. And so I, I always, you know, I, I sort of pick a Ray film or a couple of Ray films to get at what the French critics saw in Ray that they were so impressed by. Um, and, and violence, by the way, um, is one of those. I actually have I saved here um, a Truffaut a um, passage from one of these essays. This is written in 1955 in this dossier on Nicholas Ray. And it says this, um, Nick Ray is an auteur in our sense of the word. All his films tell the same story, the story of a violent man who wants to stop being violent and his relationship with a woman who has more moral strength than himself. For Ray's hero is invariably a man lashing out weak, a child man when he is not simply a child. There is always moral solitude. There are always hunters, sometimes lynchers and so on. So I use him, you know, Ray as a, as a sort of case for thinking about uh, or tourism and, and its potential excesses. And then I also have taught it in, I taught a class when I was working on this, the early stages of this most recent book of mine on um, mid-century modernism. Uh, I taught a class on mid-century media environments, and we and we uh, saw in a lonely place and um, bigger um, rebel Out of cause in that context. Hmm. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a film that I've taught multiple times, but never specifically in a in a noir class.
0: Has anything ever surprised you in how students have responded to the film or how you taught it?
1: I mean, I think. What has surprised me is how the gender politics in the reception of the film have shifted over time. Mm. Um, I mean, I uh, I think initially students were less sympathetic to a reading of the film that emphasized its alignment with Laurel's perspective and emphasized its critique of Dick Steele's masculinity, but I think over time, and I think as you know, students have just become so much more sophisticated in how they think about gender and representation. And so they, they can see what is very conventional in the film and they can see the ways in which, you know, Ray construct a certain kind of allegiance with um, a, a, a character who is clearly disturbing and toxic in certain ways, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's, that the film is on the side of, of that version of masculinity. And I've, I've been, it's been great to see uh, students better just better equipped to sort of parse that right um so that's been cool i mean i think what i don't i I just don't know how the romanticism of the film plays plays for students or whether they perceive it i i I get the sense some of it is perceived as a a bit corny um so you know the, the sort of famous lines you know um, that are repeated at the end of the film. Oh. Um I'm
0: just I'm, how does that work for you? Oh, it works great work for me. You? I I okay. mean it's it's definitely I mean it's a movie thing. Uh, yeah. you know, it, yeah. You just kind of you I don't know. I've I've particularly in the last couple of years, I've just started like surrendering surrendering myself towards movies more. And like I, I think that her use of, of finishing the line that he previously gives yeah. her, um, yeah. which I should I should pull up. Um uh, unless you remember it off the top of your head. <laughs> I was born when she
1: kissed me. I died when she left me. I lived a few weeks while she loved me.
0: Right. Okay. Perfect. And and so, um, you know, she says those first two lines. He asks her to recite them for him when they're driving yeah. at night in that very yeah. intense scene. Yeah. And then the moment after, it's such a great moment. And my understanding is the legend has it that this scene was kind of rewritten on the fly. Right. Um, because originally it was supposed to end with Dick's killing Laurel. Um, right. Instead, it, it's an interaction. She's trying to flee. He finds out about her plans to flee because uh, of her flight and then attacks her And then they get the phone call from Brub, basically telling them that uh, uh, the other man.
1: Yeah, Kessler confessed. Kessler
0: Kessler confessed. uh, And I guess attempted suicide, it's implied.
1: That's Um, right.
0: That's right. (laughs) uh, And so he finds out about this. She picks up the phone. She's talking to Brub. And there's this moment where he's waiting at the door and looking at her, almost pleading for a moment of like, is she is this it like and then she doesn't say anything to him she just tells brub that this would have mattered to us had we heard it today yesterday but it doesn't matter now yeah. and, and that's his cue to leave it says oh okay so there's no coming back from this and um yeah when he walks away and then she finishes the line but from her perspective the right um i live is that i lived a few weeks
1: I lived a
0: few weeks, yeah. And it's, I lived a few weeks while you, while he loved me. He loved me. me. Yeah, Yeah. so she flips it to be about her. And I I just thought, thought it was great. I was like, I can't think of a better way to end (laughs) it. I don't
1: know. (laughs) No, I'm glad to hear that. Because I, you know, and I think one of the, one of the reasons it works maybe is, you know, when it's, when that line is first introduced, because it could, you know, if you just read it on the page, you would think Hmm. this is, you know, so sort of saccharine and kind of cloying in its sentimentality. But I think it w- works in part because like it's introduced as a line under pressure in a certain way, if you know what I'm saying? Like hmm. it emerges in, in after that amazing scene at the beach where Dix gets enormously suspicious, gets in the car, Laurel chases after him, they're in the car. And then as you described, you know, we have that moment where Dix a- assaults this guy who, you know, he meets on the road and nearly brains him with a rock right and there's and that's a moment where you know i I always students are always really surprised by the the level of intensity of that of that violence and so it's after that she's just seen him at his most violent Hmm. and they're in the car and then and and they're sort of exchanging cigarettes if memory serves and then he explains that he's testing this line out so the line is the context in which the line is first introduced is important right because it's already a kind of um, a, a sort of fantasy about what their their relationship could be, because she's already seen into sort of something that's much deeper in him. And so there's a kind of it's I guess I, I would say it's almost always in quotation marks, you know, as it's as it's framed in the film. And this is what I mean when I say Ray just seems so smart in his like handling of of mm-hmm. emotion, because he wants to sort of take that that sentiment seriously and then show how it's a total fantasy at the same time
0: right right and i mean don't get me wrong obviously murder is worse than breakups (laughs) i can (laughs) precede what i'm about to say with that but when i think about the possible ending that could have ended with him just murdering laurel i think the shock would overtake emotion for me in that moment and that Instead, with him just sadly walking away and her watching him, that's it, it. You know that shock can work. You know, I think that's something that maybe an Edgar G. Ulmer would do, right. <laughs> or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or, or even like a Sam Fuller, but you know, yeah. possibly. But yeah, if you get it to sit in the sadness and that both of these characters have to experience the sadness because uh, right. it's not being overtaken by an act of violence, but right. an act of violence that could have happened that didn't
1: um that's, that's right that's right yeah that yeah that just... and apparently in, in, in the in the version that was that was i think not just written by sold Solt, the screenwriter but but shot um dicks strangles laurel then goes over to the typewriter finishes his screenplay the screenplay ends with the line we get and we and the camera you know we get a close-up of of, of those lines and the movie ends and mm. and w- ray doesn't allow us to sort of and with that level of neatness. And, and there's just a kind of messy sadness to the end of the film that, I don't know, it gets me.
0: Yeah, he, I, I saw the interview with uh, Ray, um, where him saying like, yeah, we had this original ending that w- was tied it up in a nice bow as yeah, he described yeah. it. Um, and yeah, it's, it's very strange how more unsatisfying in a good way the ending right. without the murder at the end is. Um, right. Uh, so I, you're a big architecture guy. You wrote an entire book oh, yeah. on architecture yeah. and film. Yeah. The place where he and Laurel live stuck out to me quite yeah. a bit in the movie. The way that they can, I guess, it's is it outside? It looks like it's an outside location. It's
1: got an interior courtyard okay. that is outside, right? Oh, so okay. the, the apartment complex, you know, there's an apartment complex and then there's in, an interior courtyard where he first um, meets Laurel, right, when he's, when he's taking Mildred back.
0: Right, right. And then they can so that, also, that
1: space is outside technically.
0: Okay, and then they can see each yeah. other through their windows,
1: which is across uh... the courtyard.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. Um, and then that scene at the end just ends so perfectly with uh, kind of that wider shot of the courtyard and him walking out. Um, yes. I don't, I didn't even really have a question regarding the, oh, <laughs> the architecture, well. but I, I, I just wanted to bring it up because I thought I, I have an architecture scholar
1: here. <laughs> I, I <didn't... laughs> no, I, I appreciate that. No, I mean, I, a couple of things I'll say about that. I mean, you know, and, and this is, if you know anything about Ray, um, or for folks who do, you know that, you know, Ray worked in a range of um, media and, and he had a relationship to architecture He had a relationship not just to architecture, but to one of the most famous architects of the 20th century, um, Frank Lloyd Wright. So, Ray's Ray's father, he's from Wisconsin, his father was a builder. And Ray, at a certain point um, when he was young, received a fellowship to study with Frank Lloyd Wright at Taliesin. And, um, you know, that sort of brief apprenticeship, which Ray, you know, in interviews claims really shaped his his, it was formative in his, his um, aesthetics and sort of um, view of the world. I think maybe critics have put undue pressure on the role of architecture in, or the role of Frank Lloyd Wright in in Ray's mm-hmm. work. So some people, I mean, Ray will say things like, you know, I have, you know, uh, um, a kind of preference for like widescreen framing, cinema scope framings and, and sort of low and horizontal because of my, you know, relationship with with Frank Lloyd Wright, and and there have been some sort of interesting readings of some of your you know Ray's compositional strategies that come through um, his um, his relationship to Frank Lloyd Wright. But I don't know in, in this film. I mean, yeah, I think the 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 space of the apartments that they're called what the patio apartments. I think that set was based on the apartment complex where Nicholas Ray first lived in when he came to Hollywood. Um, so when you had sort of gesture towards the the kind of lived in qualities of the film. You know, this is another way in which Ray is sort of building up biographical dimension or autobiographical dimension into this. But, you know, what I like about it is it sets up this really interesting sort of architecture of privacy and solitude. Right. And so that, that space is just imbued with this sort of intense romantic quality. and that's and where that they first
0: encounter each other, in the exactly
1: um, right outside they pass of the, by each other, the and fountain. we get that exactly outside yeah. the fountain, and we get the sort of swelling of George Antile's really a wonderful score. Um, the peering across the courtyard, and then you know when we're when we're actually inside of of uh, Dix's apartment space, um, I think Ray's really good at sort of using the the wrought iron um, uh, walls uh, or barriers and in, in the in the apartment to sort of um, give us a sort of set of like nested spaces. So there's a real sense of kind of concentrated privacy mm. that he's attentive to in that. And what's interesting about that is a couple things. I mean, you remember after they, they first get together, they have the, the kiss. And then the next scene, you know, clearly time has passed. And now they're in this sort of strange romantic idol. In that apartment complex, in Dix's apartment, where again Dix is now writing again, and and Laurel is you know supporting him and and typing his scripts and making him coffee and so on. And we get remember Mel shows up, mm-hmm. and Mel kind of so we're at, he's you know, peeking in. He's the kind of surrogate, He's yeah. peeking in, <laughs> which is a am- and that's great because like it's such a great inversion of you know if we're as we've been saying the film is interested in you know this sort of Huac. Um, red scare climate of paranoia and a sense of suspicion and you know being watched and being talked about you know when when you're not there here we get you know that voyeurism but it's totally um revalued right so the peeping tom the sort of most overt scene of surveillance is kind of in the key of comedy and in Mm -hmm. the sort of key of this sort of possible restoration of the romance and 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 mel's you know relationship to that as a kind of surrogate father figure in the film The last thing I'll say is there's a very good book on this um, movie by Dana Poland that's in the BFI film classics series. And um, Poland has this really interesting argument and we sort of talk up where we started talking about the genre dimensions of the film and the sort of weirdness of the genre um, in this film. He says, actually, you know, this film works you know, it's, it's ostensibly a murder mystery, but it's not really that. You know, it has elements of the, of the women's gothic film, films like you know, Hitchcock's Suspicion or Rebecca or The Lodger, but it also has aspects, he says, of um, screwball comedy in the sense that, you know, we, we have um, a, a couple that has to sort of tactically find a way to fall in love with each other, right? Um, and and he says and here he's kind of going back to Stanley Cavell's famous argument about screwball comedy in comedies of remarriage that to have the sort of rebirth of love where the couple that may split apart or has suspicions and then has to sort of come back together in their romantic union they have to do that in what Cavell calls a green space mm-hmm. and so for example in a film like um, Bringing Up Baby you know Connecticut you know is um, the green space. In um, a film like In a Lonely Place, Poland says, the green space is the apartment complex. And that's just thought, that's such a smart reading. I mean, I would, ne- I would never associate this film in sort of tone with screwball, but just the sort, sort of thinking about the sort of function of that space, I find that really compelling.
0: I pulled up uh, for the, I mean, this is a thing I've begun to do. It's a tradition now is I go to Letterbox and I pull up negative. Oh, reviews. yeah, okay. Cool. for the films <laughs> uh i'm happy to report uh, in a lonely place on letterbox are you on letterbox have you used it no no um, i know what it is but i <laughs> um f- funny enough uh, i just started following jonathan rosenbaum on letterbox so oh. he's he's here uh but he's a huge
1: nicholas ray fan has written many oh, great essays on nicholas yes. ray
0: yeah and um there are no half star reviews of in a lonely place oh. but there are some one star reviews okay let's do uh, it so but this is, I mean, this is an interesting review to me because it's one of those where it's like, I don't entirely not relate to the experience this person had. They said, beautiful movies are not about its pictures alone. It's the story and the characters that make them up. While this is a classic and a masterpiece to a lot of people, a character like Dick Steele disgusts me. My, ha- my hour and a half was spent in a clutch. And then I cannot give it any more stars than that. And I will not be praising movies like this that normalize men's animal behaviors as well. Laurel was right to be scared. You know, Laurel was right to be scared. Uh, and I uh, I am also disgusted by Dick Steele as a character as well. I, I think it's, I, the-, the thing to disagree with, I suppose is whether or not the movie normalizes that behavior.
1: Absolutely. And I would, I mean, this is where, you know when you are asking about what has surprised me over time and I have sort of signaled, you know, students um, increasing sophistication, thinking about gender. Um, I'm thinking about re- a comment precisely like that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, th- and that's that's the sh- really shrewd um, comment, but I would take, I mean, it, and that's the kind of thing that I think if I taught the film next semester, let's say, I ha- I'm sure that I would have half of the class who would have a version of that response. I think that's just kind of where we are on a certain level. and And I think that's a shrewd response, but I think, I would make the argument that the film is really kind of clinical in its investigation of the status of the so-called normal. And, and so it's not normalizing, I don't see it as normalizing dicks at all. I think um, it's underscoring the sort of patholo- the pathology of the pressures of a, a sort of so-called normal masculinity that can fuel, you know and, 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 and sort of exacerbate a sort of tendency towards a more toxic masculinity. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm not surprised by that. I understand sure. that 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 reading. Um, and and I think, you know, if you wanted to, if, if I were being as ungenerous to the film as I, I could, I would say, I think one of the faults of the film is that it, Humphrey Bogart is so compelling in it that it generates a, a certain level of sympathy for Dix that is a problem. Hmm. Right, even even though it's in the ways we've talked about, subjecting his behavior to critique and analysis, and I think really does side with Laurel on this. And Mel, I think it's something in the nature of, of Bogart's performance where there, there remains a kind of pity and sympathy, and and I totally respect that idea. That you know, I just don't want to spend you know ninety <laughs> minutes with someone right. like that.
0: Yeah, I always say you know life's hard enough as is. I, I'm not. I, I would never force somebody to spend time with a film that they just find to be an unpleasant experience if they don't, if they don't find enrichment in it. <laughs> Absolutely. Know, like life's exactly. too short. Um, that's right. And uh, on that note, the one other negative review I pulled up just says, more like In a Boring Place, which I guess is just <laughs> subjective. <laughs> um, no,
1: that would be, In a Boring Place would be the film starring Brub. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's good. That's Brub the Nikolai. Yeah, yep. attractive um, and average. <laughs> is there anything else you wanted to say about the movie uh, before we move on
1: or before we finish? No, up? no, but I, I, um, I, I'm really, it's, it's fun to talk about the film with you, Johnny. And um, I hope you, w- one thing I would say is if you finish um, In a Lonely Place, the novel, I highly, 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 highly recommend. Uh, Dorothy Hughes has a really amazing book called The Expendable Man that I think is, is you know another kind of ma- masterpiece of hers and a really subtle and smart thinking about race um, at mid-century. And I don't wanna say any more than that because to say more would really spoil the novel, but it's a, it's a stunning book. And, and Hughes work is kind of coming back into Vogue because a bunch of it has been reprinted recently. And Hughes has a number of really kind of high profile admirers. Um, and then I would say, it will be fun for you to, to encounter some other Nicholas Ray films uh, he, he made some amazing ones and I would highly recommend moving to Johnny Guitar next and then maybe check out a film called um with Robert Mitchum called The Lusty Men oh okay
0: yeah okay very good uh the last thing I wanted to leave on is uh I was wondering if you had any words of wisdom, I suppose, for you know, all of the listeners that we've, we've been stuck at home, we've been probably diving into film more than we ever have before in our life. Uh, what do you hope somebody at a time like this who maybe is finally getting to their watch list and watching a lot of things that they meant to watch, what do you hope uh, in general people get from this experience of being locked at home with film?
1: Oh, that's such a great question. And I will say that I have watched more films in the last year than I've had, than I've watched in any year, probably since I was a graduate student. So wow. I, I've also been like compulsively screening films at night when my kids go to bed. Um, well, it, it, there's, it's just an embarrassment of riches right now. I, I would say like, there's so much amazing stuff and, and, some, and it's so much more widely accessible it was for example johnny you know when i was your age i mean a lot of stuff was was hard to see unless you're in you know a, a city that had a great you know great movie theaters or we're in a college town or something like that so the fact that you have access to like so much of world cinema you know through criterion channel or what whatever streaming platform it is like take advantage of it because man there's just so much amazing stuff out there. And I also, I mean, I, I a lot of the stuff I've been watching has been through Criterion Channel. And I think their programming has been really excellent recently. You know, they, they had a, I think a strong and very well-earned critique about the racism of the catalog of films and, and the stuff that they've been programming on the Criterion Channel specifically has been remarkable. So I, I just, you know, take advantage of all the great stuff out there. And I, I suppose, feel lucky even in this like very dark time it's so difficult for many of us that you have access to these great works of art because we need them to keep us going well that was very well put
0: um i i can't thank you enough for for your time i thought that this was a wonderful conversation
1: i really enjoyed it it's great to see you i hadn't <laughs>
0: I was a lonely one till you. All right, everybody that wraps up another episode of we are movies. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to justice for coming on. I really appreciate it. It, honestly just means a whole lot as i mentioned before he's a great author definitely uh check out some of his books if uh, if they interest you as i said the david lynch book is just incredible the uh entire chapter on inland empire is a spectacle in of itself <laughs> so um I, I will uh, recommend that book until the day I die. If you are a fan of the podcast and you haven't yet, uh, we always appreciate a review on iTunes. And if you haven't done so, you can also like us on facebook at we are movies you can follow us on instagram and twitter at we are movies pod you can also follow me on instagram twitter and letterboxd at johnny mockney j-o-h-n-n-y m-o-c-n-y that is all i have for you today i will be back with you soon and until then this is johnny mockney saying i lived a few weeks while you listened to my podcast